Chapter 13 A Slap on the Wrist Who manipulates Yen Libor? Guillaume Adolf asked Mirhat Alikulov one day in late September 2009, a few days after Hayes left UBS for the last time. I have a bad feeling somebody is. Coming from Adolf, it was a bizarre question. Apparently intended to somehow manipulate or extract information from Alikolov. With Hayes' departure, the Kazakh had been elevated a rung or two at UBS and now was interacting directly with more brokers and rival traders, such as Gollum. Sometimes City and Chase are fucking around, Alikolov said, playing dumb. Can't stand them moving it up and down. Bullshit. The fiery Frenchman responded. What's bullshit? Tom was setting the Libors he wanted. Nah, Alikolov said. Our guys in Zurich don't even want to talk to us on Libors. The lies zipped back and forth between the two competitors. It wasn't Alikolov's only relationship built on a dishonest foundation. Reed dished out advice to the newly mentor less trader. About what he could do to nudge Libor in helpful directions. Mirhat, you realize that you have the ability to influence the three month fix, he pointed out on one occasion. Alikulov thanked him. Reed, however, was running out of steam. He and Joanna had bought a dilapidated villa that they planned to renovate, a hovel, Reed called it. The coming year, Reed would collect roughly $1 million in salary and bonus. But to save money, he planned to do some of the home improvement work himself. When not with hammer and paintbrush, he hoped to spend time watching the local Wellington soccer team, which was suddenly winning games thanks to the import of an aging star from England. It was time to wash his hands of Alikolov. You have been a pleasure to talk to for these past few months, but the more I have thought about it, The more I think that you talking directly to ICAP's Japanese affiliate will work out best for UBS, Reed emailed. Tom will be under intense pressure to produce early on, and as a result, he will be even more unreasonable than normal. Lucky me. Alikulov, however, wasn't quite ready to let Reed go. Over Christmas, he repeatedly complained to Reed. That his ICAP colleagues in London weren't doing enough to knock six month LIBOR lower. Reed emailed Wilkinson about the earful he was getting. Wilkinson, coming off his best year ever, was due to collect nearly $2 million in salary and bonus. Alikulov and Hayes, Reed explained, were both under the false impression that Goodman talks individually to his banks and exerts his views in that way. Reed had spent years cultivating the illusion that Goodman was doing more than he really was. He didn't want Wilkinson to shatter it with some offhand comment. It didn't take long for Hayes to figure out that Citigroup's culture was different from UBS's. Sure, on the face of it, there were some striking similarities. Over the years, through countless acquisitions orchestrated by hard charging CEOs, Both had been transformed into earth spanning behemoths that, depending on your perspective, epitomized either the tremendous potential of the new era of financial globalization 
or the perils of the deregulatory fever that had swept the Western world. In the years before the crisis, both had gone on reckless benders, top executives at both banks seeming to possess uncannily bad timing, crowding into markets just before they imploded. Their respective CEOs, Charles Prince at Citigroup and Marcel Rohner at UBS, both had paid for the resulting calamities with their jobs. And, of course, both banks had received massive government bailouts and became international symbols of greed, mismanagement, and scandal. But there were big differences, too. Every bank Hayes had worked for during his eight-year career was from a different nation, and only one, RBS, was from his home country. Now he was working with lots of loud, brash Americans. Hayes had been known for his intermittent outbursts, but Citigroup's trading floor in Tokyo was of another volume altogether. Employees frequently used the hoot-and-holler system that allowed them to talk into their phone line and have their voice blasted out of every trader's speaker system. That system had existed at UBS, too, but it was rarely used. Even the Brits at Citigroup, like McCappin, were on the wild side. I was in the office till 5 a.m., the CEO moaned to Hayes one morning. Hayes asked why. McCappin clarified that the office was the name of a Tokyo nightclub. It was a far cry from UBS's relatively staid culture. Chekaray was the brashest of the bunch. He loved going out, twisting his colleagues' arms to have another drink and then another. He seemed to draw energy from social situations. Somehow, all the partying didn't come at the expense of him working hard. Within days of Hayes joining, Chekaray was trying to figure out how to help his newest employee move LIBOR and Tibor. If Citigroup's application to join the Tibor committee was accepted, the bank's first submission could have a big impact, potentially influencing other banks. Hayes asked Chekaray to identify the employees who'd be responsible for Tibor and to set up a meeting. Chekaray did so, and he also asked a Tokyo teammate, a Malaysian named Stantley Tan, who was in charge of the cash desk in Japan, to figure out who Citigroup's relevant LIBOR submitters were in London. Tan reported back that it was Thursfield's group, which also included Lawrence Porter and the green behind the ears, Burak Cheltik. Chekaray dispatched Tan to see how amenable Thursfield's crew would be to helping. The initial signals seemed good, Tan reported. As a test, Chekaray asked Tan to complain to London that its most recent yen LIBOR submission was too high. After Tan relayed the message via email, Chekaray forwarded the exchange to Andrew Morton. I've taken over global coordination of doing this properly, he wrote. The hand-in-glove collaboration between traders and LIBOR submitters would have been the envy of banks like UBS, which had spent years trying to foster such cooperation. Tom, though, had misread the mood in London. Porter was unsettled by his email and mentioned it to Thursfield. It seemed to Thursfield, who had spent considerable time over the past year dealing with queries from regulators, that while such behavior might have been acceptable in the past, his Tokyo colleagues weren't behaving as if a major government investigation was underway.
This was the latest ill wind to blow from Japan, after Hayes's disagreeable visit a couple of months earlier. So Thursfield typed out a long, carefully worded response, a polite but firm reminder that Citigroup's LIBOR submissions were not subject to debate. The rules surrounding rate setting are strict, he wrote to Chekere and others. Any recommendations or suggestions as to where rates should be set have to be disregarded. Just to cover all his bases, Thursfield checked Citigroup's LIBOR submissions and was relieved to see they hadn't moved. Celtic apparently had disregarded Tan's request. Nonetheless, he took Celtic and Porter aside and told them not to tolerate any interference from Tokyo. Then Thursfield forwarded the whole email chain to one of the bank's compliance officials. Chekere passed the exchange to Hayes, who hadn't been included on Thursfield's missive. If Hayes bothered to scroll through the long sequence of emails, it didn't influence his behavior. A few days later, Hayes decided to visit London early in 2010 to attempt to build a personal relationship with Thursfield's squad. I think we need good dialogue with the cash desk. They can be invaluable to us, he wrote to Chekere and a London-based colleague, Hayato Hoshino, who was assigned to work with Hayes. If we know ahead of time where LIBOR is going, we can position and scalp the market. Hoshino had moved to London from Tokyo just a few months earlier and spoke broken English. His shy, diminutive personality earned him the nickname Little Hoshino, and his relatively modest $91,000 salary made him all the more eager to impress Hayes and learn how to become a star. Hayes suggested that he and Hoshino tried to curry favor with the cash guys by taking them out to a fancy dinner. Despite sitting nearby, Hoshino had never actually met Thursfield's crew. He got to work planning a get-together. One day in mid-December, Hayes was sitting at his desk trying to get his Excel spreadsheets to interact properly with Citigroup's computer systems when an interesting email landed in his inbox. A member of Citigroup's financial research team in Tokyo recently had met with senior officials at the Bank of Japan. The central bankers had been surprisingly candid, and the researcher had gleaned valuable clues about the Bank of Japan's thinking on the direction of interest rates and its plans for upcoming bond auctions. Given the central bank's enormous power over rates, the exclusive information would be valuable to just about any trader with a stake in short-term fluctuations in rates or the yen's value relative to other currencies. For that reason, the report was confidential and not supposed to be shared outside Citigroup. Hayes skimmed the document. There wasn't much he could actually do with it. He wouldn't be trading for nearly two months, and by then, the research would be obsolete. It would be a shame, though, to let such useful information go to waste. So, disregarding instructions, he decided to send the report to Adolf. After all, he still owed Gollum a favor for the precious advance notice he'd given on Deutsche Bank's LIBOR plans earlier in the year. Have some yen info you may be interested in, Hayes typed into a chat session that morning. Will you promise not to forward, reproduce, etc.? Adolf swore not to, 
on my son's head. Hayes pasted the full report into the chat room. Then they discussed the possible implications of what the central bankers were saying. They agreed it was likely to push LIBOR and TIBOR slightly lower. The report was one variable, an important one, for Adolf to consider as he tinkered with his derivatives portfolio that day. Anyway, that's as a favor, Hayes concluded. Nobody apart from me will hear anything, Adolf vowed. In January, Hayes flew to London, the first stop on another of his world tours, and his first as a Citigroup employee. He had meetings lined up with clients and a variety of bank personnel, but the most important item on his agenda was the meal with Thursfield's team. Hoshino had tried to organize a dinner, but Porter suggested lunch instead, which he figured would be less formal and shorter. As it was, Thursfield was out of town, so it was just Porter and Sheltick joining Hayes and Hoshino. That was fine with Hayes, who, despite being bad at reading people, could tell he hadn't made a great impression on Thursfield back in October. Hoshino booked a table at Roka, a loud, trendy Japanese restaurant across the street from Citigroup's skyscraper, exactly the kind of scene that Hayes hated. After ordering wine for the table, he got things started by casually explaining that from time to time, he and Hoshino planned to ping Celtic with suggestions about where they thought yen LIBOR should be set, based on what they were seeing in the Tokyo market. Hayes characterized it as normal behavior, not a big deal. It was how things had worked during his days at UBS and other banks before that, he said. Porter emphasized that everything should be couched in the language of market color, as opposed to Hayes saying he wanted LIBOR up or down to suit his portfolio of derivatives. And he cautioned that his team was under clear orders to keep Citigroup's LIBOR submissions in line with its competitors. Hoshino hardly spoke. At the end of the meal, Hayes picked up the tab and left with a good feeling. Footnote. Porter would later claim that he began the lunch by warning that Citigroup wouldn't base its LIBOR submissions on Hayes' trading positions. End footnote. His next stop was New York, where he visited the bank's headquarters and sat down with some big clients, including the hedge fund run by the legendary investor George Soros. He also traveled to Lower Manhattan to meet officials at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, a meeting arranged by Citigroup and eagerly accepted by the Fed, which was always looking for insight into the inner workings of overseas financial markets. The secretive central bank, based in a fortress-like stone compound just off Wall Street, was one of the primary guardians of the U.S. financial markets. It was the Fed whose officials, two years earlier, had heard warnings from Barclays about traders manipulating LIBOR. Hayes was thrilled to have the chance to compare notes about what he was seeing in Tokyo's markets and to grill the officials about the direction of U.S. interest rates. The whole trip was exhilarating, but also exhausting. Hayes had to meet firms that specialized in Japanese trading and therefore operated during Asian market hours at night. Once done, he would retreat to his Waldorf Astoria hotel room to watch Seinfeld reruns. Back in Tokyo, 
One of McCappin's deputies received an unsettling phone call from an acquaintance at UBS who was no fan of Hayes. The UBS man told him that Hayes had a reputation for trying to skew LIBOR. Citigroup should watch out, he warned. The deputy informed McCappin of the conversation. McCappin, possibly suspicious of the UBS source's motives, given Hayes's controversial reputation inside his former employer, brushed off the concern. He wasn't about to let some vague innuendo tarnish his new star, a man he had just lavished with praise during a raucous ski weekend in the mountains of Karuizawa. Footnotes Citigroup denies that McCappin received such a warning. End footnote. Chekere, meanwhile, received some good news. Citigroup's application to join the Tybor panel had been accepted by the Japanese Bankers Association. Citigroup would join the committee in April. It makes us more relevant, Chekere boasted to Morton and McCappen. Just remember all the issues involved, Morton responded. Citigroup, after all, had been fielding increasingly frequent government inquiries about LIBOR. Chekere and Morton were tight, two Americans sharing the swashbuckling Lehman ethos. They looked down on some of their new colleagues. Once, after going to dinner with Citigroup's top executive in Asia, Stephen Byrd, Chekere described the meal to Morton. Byrd, a Scotsman, was gunning to become Citigroup's overall CEO, and Chekere noted that he didn't seem interested in getting his hands dirty with nitty-gritty operational details. I find it very hard to take seriously someone with that much of a Scottish accent, Morton remarked. It's very difficult, Chekere agreed. It's like, you know, you expect him to be a paperboy or something like that, Morton chuckled. Come on now, lose the fucking Scottish accent to take him seriously. Chekere heeded Morton's be careful message about LIBOR. Ten days later, he sent a note to Stantley Tan saying they needed to figure out how they were going to coordinate their rate submissions with London. No need for any emails on this, but I think we should speak in person, he wrote. A couple of months later, he asked Tan to work with London to keep LIBOR steady, noting that his team had a lot of money riding on the outcome. Then he added, But I mean, if you can't, you can't, so please don't feel pressure from me. Hayes started trading in February. Right off the bat, his temper flared. His first day, infuriated by things not going his way, he informed first one broker, then another, that he was severing his relationships with them, a temporary move known as pulling his line, as punishment for their perceived ineptitude. Within hours, he'd pulled his lines with ICAP, R.P. Martin, and Tullet Prebon. He reinstated one of the lines that afternoon, only to revoke it later that day. The episode would go down in brokerage industry lore as one of the era's epic tantrums. Notwithstanding his fierce mood, Hayes's return came none too soon for his brokers. He was such a big player in Tokyo that traders expected him to inject new life into what recently had been moribund markets. That, of course, was good news for brokers whose profits were directly linked to the amount of business traders were doing. 
Farr was among those happiest to have Hayes back, but he wasn't having much luck fulfilling his client's LIBOR requests. When he called Luke Madden, an HSBC trader, in February, Farr got a discouraging response. He fucking said to me not to ask him again, the broker recounted to Hayes. They've all got right fucking funny on it recently. Here was one more sign that the LIBOR-skewing game was nearing its end. Reed, too, was dying to get back to work. His do-it-yourself home renovation had turned into a nightmare. Think of a number, double it, and then add a bit more, he said of the spiraling costs. Adding to his stress, his mother had been staying with him and Joanna the past three weeks. Dealing with Hayes promised to cause more heartburn. Indeed, it didn't take long before a perceived screw-up prompted Hayes to threaten to sever Citigroup's entire relationship with ICAP. But Shekharay had negotiated a fixed-fee arrangement, similar to the one with UBS. It made a certain amount of abuse worthwhile. Hayes now had two reliable contacts at ICAP. Brent Davies was getting accustomed to his new career as a broker. It was less lucrative than being a trader, but that wasn't the end of the world. I've always been poor and content, like a Buddhist monk, he told Hayes. I know the more money I have seems to make me no happier, Hayes replied, a confounding sentiment for someone who'd long complained about his compensation and had finally become a millionaire. In early March, it was crunch time for one of Hayes's big first batches of trades at Citigroup, and he badly needed LIBOR lower. He enlisted Farr, Reed, and Davies, the latter with the express intent of working over their former RBS colleague, a LIBOR submitter named Paul White, to get the bank to knock down its submission. Can I pick your brain? Davies messaged White a little while later. We have a mutual friend who'd love to see LIBOR go down. Ha ha, TH, by chance, White replied. Shh. <laughs> Mine should remain flat. Always suits me, if anything, to go lower. Gotcha, thanks. And, if you could see your way to a small drop, there might be a stake in it for you. Ha <laughs> ha, Davies coaxed. Noted. Winking smiley face, White confirmed. And so it went. Next verse, same as the first. Hayes's Citigroup colleagues also lent a hand. Hoshino was dispatched to Cheltik's desk, and Hayes and Chekere regularly gathered in a conference room with the Tybor submitters and badgered them to move the bank's data to suit their trading positions. Occasionally, when the cash desk colleagues in Tokyo were being stubborn, McCappin pitched in with a phone call or a meeting. As CEO, he was well-situated to push them to comply with Hayes and Chekere's Tybor wishes. Sometimes, McCappin placed the call with Hayes standing in his corner office, admiring its splendid views of Tokyo's Imperial Palace and its surrounding gardens, just so the trader would know the CEO really was doing his part. Footnote. Citigroup denies that McCappin made such requests. End footnote. As always, no one seemed concerned about the effects of skewing the rates on people outside the bank but even the normally oblivious Hayes was growing nervous about how this might look.
Make sure not to put it in writing. He noted to Hoshino after asking him to push the London guys to get LIBOR lower. Footnote. Hayes would later claim that he simply thought it would be more effective if Hoshino casually approached the London colleagues in person, and that's why he told him not to put it in writing. End footnote. Citigroup's submission declined. On a conference call with Porter the next day, Hayes thanked him for his help. No worries, Porter responded. I might occasionally ask Hoshino to pop over, with more requests, Hayes said. We won't look at individual positions or anything like that, Porter answered carefully. But, you know, often it's just a case of drawing our attention to a trend in the market that might not have moved. Then we'll look at it, and if it feels appropriate, then obviously we'll reflect it in the market. In other words, Hayes interpreted, don't be too blatant. That's perfect. That's really great, he said. I appreciate that. No worries, Porter repeated. In his nine-year career as a trader, Hayes had earned several million dollars for himself and several hundred million dollars for his employers. Now, 2010 was off to a great start. By early April, after two months of trading, he had hauled in about $50 million for Citigroup. He was 30 years old, engaged to a woman he loved, living in a spacious three-bedroom, three-bathroom apartment with a large balcony overlooking the fancy Rapongi neighborhood. Citigroup paid the monthly rent of roughly $7,500. With his huge signing bonus, Hayes was officially a high roller, not that you could usually tell. He still preferred hanging out at the Windsor or at home. Orange juice and hot chocolate remained his beverages of choice. If he needed to drink beer for some reason, he diluted it with a sugary soft drink. When Ty went on a work trip early that year, Hayes' idea of a big night was inviting Nigel Delmar over to watch American Idol. Hayes was happier than he'd ever been. A month later, he and Ty headed off on a vacation to Longkawi, a Malaysian archipelago. By then, Hayes was up $40 million for the year. In other words, he'd lost $10 million over the past month. And world events didn't cooperate with their holiday plans. Greece was buckling under a heavy load of debts, and nasty rumors of the country ditching the common European currency or of the Eurozone unraveling altogether were ricocheting around Wall Street. Because of the euro's role as a benchmark against other currencies, the fears and fluctuations wrought havoc with Hayes' portfolios. He spent his first days in Malaysia glued to his BlackBerry, tortured that he was away from the office, trying to keep up with how his trades were weathering the turmoil. The answer? Not well. But plenty of other people also were losing money. It wasn't cause for particular alarm. Then, around 2.30 in the afternoon of May 6th in New York, stock markets started nosediving. The Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged nearly 1,000 points within a few minutes, one of the largest drops ever. At first, market watchers stared at their screens, thinking they were witnessing the onset of another global stock market collapse. Then, just as quickly, 
the markets recovered most of their losses. The momentary event was soon dubbed the flash crash. Footnote. Years later, regulators would still be searching for a convincing explanation for what caused the plunge. American authorities would criminally charge a socially awkward math whiz named Navinder Sarau as a primary culprit. Trading out of his family's modest London home, Sarau had been using algorithms to simulate bids and offers, a strategy that prosecutors would allege had helped trigger the crash. End footnote. Despite the rebound, markets remained volatile. Hayes's trading book yo-yoed up and down as much as $15 million a day. The couple remained in Malaysia, but any hopes for a relaxing vacation were dashed. When Hayes had to pee, he insisted that Ty sit in front of the TV and shout if anything happened in the markets while he was relieving himself. One night, they went out to dinner. At the restaurant, Hayes hardly spoke to Ty. He was cemented to his phone checking the market, and repeatedly calling Chekere in Tokyo. Afterward, they retreated to their luxurious room at the Four Seasons, where Hayes flipped on CNBC for his nighttime markets vigil. The next morning, he asked her why they hadn't gone out to dinner the previous night. He had completely forgotten. By the time the vacation was over, Hayes's portfolio had gone from being up $40 million for the year to being $20 million in the red. He returned to Tokyo in a nasty mood. He had always taken losses personally, and this was pure carnage, the worst he'd ever suffered. He struggled to hold back tears as he explained the losses to his bosses, first McCappen, then Chekaray, then Morton. None of them were worried. Win some and lose some, Chekere said. More losses loomed. Two of Hayes's Citigroup colleagues soon quit for jobs at Deutsche Bank. Their defections would have been unremarkable, except that early in the morning, before they handed in their resignations, while their colleagues slept, the two traders came into the office, accessed a shared computer drive, and printed out reams of data about Hayes's trading portfolio. They didn't much like Hayes, whose arrival at Citigroup had marginalized them. Because his positions were so big, there was no way that a single trader, or even a single bank, could move the markets against him. But if a bunch of banks joined forces, it was different. And that, it appeared, was what the two traders had in mind. Hayes soon noticed that Deutsche Bank established five trading positions that seemed specifically tailored to go against five of his own biggest gambles. It would have been a very odd coincidence, and he alerted Chekaray. Citigroup examined internal surveillance videos and logs of activity on its printers, which confirmed Hayes's suspicions. The two traders remained on the bank's payroll during their gardening leave, and when confronted, they insisted they had shredded the documents just after printing them. The explanation didn't make sense. Why had they printed the materials in the first place? Before long, Hayes's trading positions became common knowledge across Tokyo. Rival banks started to attack. This was hardly an unprecedented phenomenon, and it made Hayes's willingness to talk openly to rivals and brokers about his trading positions especially tough to comprehend. 
Back in the late 1990s, long-term capital management, at the time the world's largest hedge fund, unraveled in the space of six late summer weeks, partly because Wall Street banks, like Goldman Sachs, had gleaned valuable information about what assets it was holding. Hayes was familiar with this tale, having read When Genius Failed, the definitive account of the fund's collapse. Banks had a number of potential reasons to try to undermine a rival trader's wagers. One was simply malice. Long-term capital, like Hayes, had rubbed a lot of people the wrong way through its arrogance when it was swimming in money and schadenfreude as a powerful force on Wall Street. But there was a more practical motivation as well. Struggling traders were likely to have to dump their positions in a hurry, leading the prices of whatever assets they were selling to tumble. Hence, it was common for traders to amass positions that would gain value as those bets unraveled, a strategy that tended to accelerate the sell-off, worsening the troubled trader's woes. This was the position Hayes now found himself in. And as his losses grew, he dug himself into a deeper hole. For the past month, he had been in a bizarre dance with Alikolov. They were no longer colleagues, but they remained pals. At least that's how Hayes saw it. He'd always been a tough boss to Alikolov, and not a very good one, by his own estimation but he respected and liked his former underling. Now he wanted to explore hiring Alikolov at Citigroup. He also was interested in working with him to make sure LIBOR moved in mutually beneficial directions. One day in late April, he invited Alikolov out for a beer. Alikolov already had plans that night, but suggested Sunday or Monday evenings instead. But that wouldn't work for Hayes. Sunday night I get sex, he explained. I only get it once a week, so reluctant to go out that night. He was serious. Ha ha, Alikolov responded. That's sacred then. They settled on a weekday lunch instead and had a long chat, all about LIBOR and Hayes' trading strategies. Alikolov the next day was departing for a vacation in Bolivia, but he didn't even mention the plans to Hayes, who refused to talk about anything other than interest rates. Afterward, Hayes suffered a bout of anxiety. He checked with Alikolov to confirm that their talk was secret and that he wouldn't tell his UBS colleagues what Hayes was up to in the market. The material is for you only, he said. Alikolov agreed. But Alikolov didn't see Hayes as a friend. This was all business, and business meant their interests diverged. After Hayes had defected, Pieri and others at UBS became terrified that Hayes would use his inside knowledge of UBS against the bank. That was what gardening leave was supposed to protect against. But Hayes' former colleagues rightly surmised that he was unlikely to adhere to the strictest interpretation of the three-month cooling-off period. By the time Hayes started racking up profits at Citigroup, Pieri and his colleagues were obsessing about their former star. Pieri's fears turned out to be unfounded. Hayes stuck to his word not to attack the positions he'd amassed at UBS, but in the industry's no-honor-among-thieves culture, it's easy to see why Pieri was nervous. 
he urged Alikulov to try to pry information out of Hayes. If nothing else, that would allow UBS to piggyback on his trades, position its own portfolio against his, or simply get out of his way. On May 14th, Hayes invited Alikulov out again. Alikulov balked, partly because he already had dinner plans. Look, Hayes began, I spent a long time training you. I hope that I was okay to you. I think that we either take the view that we work together, like I do with Deutsche, or we go our separate ways. Together, I think it benefits you and me. But I need to trust you, and vice versa. I will leave it up to you. I do look up to you since you trained me, Alikulov said, and grudgingly agreed to stop by the Windsor after his dinner. Hayes said he'd be there around 9 p.m. You need to decide whether you want us to stay in touch like I do with Gollum at Deutsche, he reiterated, or we just shake hands and go separate ways. After 12 minutes and no response from Alikulov, Hayes was nervous. Had he pressed too hard? Come on too strong? Is that okay? Are we meeting later? Nine more minutes passed. No response. Yes, no? Hayes pleaded, like an anxious teenager waiting to see if a crush will return his phone call. Almost an hour later, Alikulov put Hayes out of his misery. He confirmed he would come to the Windsor. Hayes breathed a sigh of relief. He shouldn't have. A week later, Pieri, Yugo Matsumoto, and Naomichi Tamura were once again fretting about Hayes, trying to figure out his positions in the turbulent market. The three managers exchanged their theories. Then Alikulov chimed in. Hayes has a position that profits if U.S. dollar LIBOR rises. Oh, really? Tamura asked. Wow, Pieri said, impressed with the youngster's scoop. They all scrambled to assess what that meant for their portfolios and the broader market. Then Pieri asked how Alikulov knew. He told me, Alikulov explained. Hayes had indeed trained Alikulov well. It was every man for himself. Hayes wouldn't learn of the betrayal for years. Buckling under heavy losses, Hayes redoubled his efforts to get LIBOR moved in helpful directions sometimes in a manner that bordered on recklessness, deluging his contacts with requests, even when they'd already indicated that they couldn't help. It was hard to tell if Hayes simply couldn't take a clue or didn't care what they said. In any case, the barrage continued, to his Citigroup colleagues, to his brokers, to his competitors. All the email traffic was making Chekere squirm, he told Hayes and Hoshino to stop communicating in writing. In the future, he instructed, talk about LIBOR via cell phones so nothing is lost in translation over email. Citigroup didn't record cell phone calls. Hoshino interpreted that order, coming from a manager, to be as good as condoning the LIBOR moving requests. One day in June, McCappen and Andrew Morton had a phone call about some of the problems they were having in the trading business. Problems that, in no small part, were caused by Hayes' struggles. Morton mentioned that various government authorities were delving into LIBOR. 
subpoenas had started to fly. It was the first McCappen had heard of the investigations, and he was alarmed, especially because he had noticed that the pace and intensity of requests from Hayes and Chekaray seemed to have been increasing of late. He informed Chekaray about the government's scrutiny and told him that he and Hayes should no longer communicate directly with Stantley Tan and his cash desk colleagues. Instead, the requests should be routed through McCappen. That week, Kiiko, one of the Citigroup employees responsible for Tybor submissions, happened to have a brief conversation with McCappen. Ko said that Hayes and Chekaray in the past had told the cash desk not to lower Tybor, even though the submitters thought that's what should happen based on Citigroup's borrowing costs. Now the same thing was happening again. Tan, who was Ko's boss, had a similar chat with McCappen. The problem, Tan had told McCappen, was that Hayes' team kept flip-flopping on what they wanted, a reflection of Hayes' trading positions changing from day to day. It made Citigroup look stupid to keep reversing the direction of its submissions. McCappen was very clear about the problem, Tan told Co. afterward. So McCappen now found himself in the middle of an awkward tug-of-war between different factions of Citigroup Japan. With his colleagues less inclined to help, Hayes tried Gollum. The Deutsche Bank trader was having a middling year and had relinquished responsibility for the bank's yen-libor submissions. Hayes was under the false impression that he still retained some influence over the rate. Adolf, however, had gotten wind of the government investigations. So when Hayes started pestering him for help getting LIBOR moved, the same type of request he'd lodged many times before, Adolf shot him down. Enough, he said, cutting him off. Hayes kept going, detailing what he was looking for. I have no influence or control, nor do I want to be involved, Adolf said. Hayes was confused. Sure thing, he said, trying to defuse the awkward situation. Well, how are you doing anyway? Later, as he deconstructed the conversation, he figured maybe Adolf had been brusque because of the tough year he was having. Or maybe it was that he was no longer in charge of Yen Libor. Then an unsettling thought crossed his mind. It was almost as if Adolf was worried that someone might weed through their chats in the future. When Hayes left UBS, Pieri had taken it as a personal betrayal. He had stuck his neck out, over and over again, for his star, extracting rare concessions from top UBS brass, and Hayes still quit. It made Pieri look bad. The anger festered. By summer, Pieri was out for blood. Hayes is so stubborn and thinks he is bigger than the market, Pieri gossiped to a Credit Suisse trader named Paul Ellis as the two marveled about the size of Hayes' trading portfolio. I had to rein him in all the time when he was here. That was a lie. In fact, UBS had encouraged him to pile on riskier trades. I knew that when I hired him and prevented it, and told him he was at risk of blowing up when he left. Pieri hinted to Ellis that Hayes was circumventing Citigroup's risk management systems, 
It would be interesting if someone were to drop an anonymous line to their market risk guys, he said. Ellis then cited a market rumor about one of Hayes' specific trading positions. I can confirm he had that position, Pieri responded. If his losses kept piling up, he continued, Tom will end up the fall guy, as Chris Checkere is Andrew Morton's mate. These are reckless Lehman's guys managing the place. Chris is way over his head, and his boss Andrew has no idea how to run a business. They bought the racehorse, but don't have a good jockey. Over lunch later that month, Pieri explained to Ellis how Hayes used brokers at ICAP and elsewhere to move LIBOR in favorable directions. Hayes and Checkeray had picked up inklings that Pieri was among the leaders of an anti-Hayes bandwagon. Checkeray, for example, had noticed Pieri trading in a bizarre fashion that made it seem like he was simply trying to damage Hayes' positions, not make money for himself. But he hadn't really believed that was happening. It would be an irrational way for an executive at a major bank to act. His compensation was tied to his trading desk's profits, not a rival bank's performance. Hayes, meanwhile, had finally come to the conclusion that he probably shouldn't be placing his trust in Alikulov, given his connection to Pieri. But neither Hayes nor Chekare realized the severity of the situation until June 28th, when Chekare went out for drinks at a crowded Tokyo bar. In a city with more than 13 million inhabitants, he ended up seated at a wooden table right next to Pieri and another UBS trader. The two UBS men were sipping white wine and talking shop. They didn't seem to recognize Chekare. So he sat there, nursing his drink and eavesdropping. At one point, he pulled out his phone and surreptitiously snapped a grainy photo of the two men. The only thing he, Pieri, spoke about was screwing Tom and Citibank, Chekare wrote later that night in an incredulous email to Morton and McCappen. He attached the photo as proof. His end game is to inflict pain and not make money. He sounded like a raving zealot who'd lost the plot. Given his trades in the last day and a half, he's now spending money to have a go at Tom, us. Not that it really matters, but this is what we are dealing with. Three days earlier, Hayes had set in motion a chain of events that would inflict far more damage than anything Pieri could do. It was the last Friday in June, sunny, warm, and clear in both Tokyo and London. Hayes was still losing money. Growing desperate, he had convinced himself that, if his next batch of trades didn't pay off, it would cost him his job. That afternoon, talking to Hoshino on his cell phone, he asked him to lean on Celtic to increase Citigroup's submissions by 0.01 percentage points on Monday and Tuesday. Hoshino tentatively walked over to Celtic's desk. Here's a message from Tom, he said quietly. It would be good for us if LIBOR went up by one basis point. Celtic told him to stop. They couldn't be talking about this kind of stuff. Trying to drive his point home, he claimed that some Barclays traders recently had been arrested for just this sort of behavior. Footnote. 
No Barclays traders had been arrested. It's unclear what Cheltic was referring to. End footnote. Hoshino shuffled away, rattled. He called Hayes and told him what had happened. Oh, okay, Hayes replied, unperturbed. When Hoshino relayed what Cheltic had said about the Barclays traders, Hayes brushed it off. The two of them hadn't actually been asking Cheltic to move LIBOR, he explained. They had simply been stating aloud what would please them. Hoshino didn't buy the tortured distinction. Cheltic told Porter about the conversation with Hoshino. Porter told him to tell Thursfield. Thursfield told his boss, Compton, as well as Matt German, a senior executive. German told Morton, who said he would inform the bank's compliance department. By the following Monday, nobody from compliance had called. So Thursfield took it upon himself to phone one of the bank's compliance officers and tell him everything. Knowing what it knew about the U.S. government's escalating investigations, the bank didn't really have a choice. Within days, Citigroup launched an internal review into the matter. Unaware that the compliance department had been alerted, Hayes kept pushing traders and brokers to nudge LIBOR up or down. But it was getting harder. Farr sent an apologetic email to let him know that Luke Madden at HSBC had texted him, not for the first time, asking me not to mention LIBORs again. Then Hayes asked Hoshino to call him. Hoshino had been sufficiently frightened by the prior week's incident that he rang Hayes on his work line, not his cell phone, figuring Hayes wouldn't talk about LIBOR on the recorded line. He was wrong. Without hesitation, Hayes asked Hoshino to go back to Celtic. Hoshino hung up and called Hayes back on his cell phone. I don't want to do it, he said. Why was Hayes having such trouble getting the message? In the middle of the day on July 6th, Hoshino was summoned into a meeting room. A phalanx of compliance officials was waiting for him. Terrified, he stammered through the interview repeatedly failing to remember recent events surrounding his and Hayes's LIBOR requests. The Citigroup investigators perceived him as uncooperative. Hoshino didn't tell his Tokyo colleagues about the meeting. About a week later, though, Chekere detected that something was amiss. Maybe Hoshino had been scolded, and that's why he was no longer cooperating. Chekere called Morton to figure out what was going on. Morton said the London LIBOR submitters had complained to compliance. Those fucking cunts, Chekere exploded. What is wrong with them? Pardon my language, but that drives me fucking mental. Pick up a phone and have a word with me. Morton tried to calm him down to no avail. What the fuck kind of bank is this? Chekere sputtered. Turn your own people in instead of just picking up a phone and saying, Look, this is really not comfortable. Please stop it. Like that's all you have to say and it's done. But of course it hadn't been done. Until now. One morning that month, Citigroup traders in London arrived to find neatly printed documents placed on their desks overnight. The message spelled out, in detail, the acceptable procedures surrounding the LIBOR submission process.
In Tokyo that day, all of Citigroup's traders were called into a meeting room to hear a similar message. A bunch of executives, including McCappen, were piped into the meeting via speakerphone. From this point forward, no traders were allowed to speak to the cash desks. Any exceptions had to be authorized by the compliance department. The rules were now crystal clear, even to Hayes. On a Sunday evening in July, Chekaray called Hayes on his cell phone. I need to speak to you, he said. They decided to meet at the Windsor. The two sat in the deserted pub, as they had a dozen times in the past, a beer per banker, although Hayes hardly touched his. Then Chekaray got to the point. Tomorrow, these lawyers are coming in to do this investigation into LIBOR. Why? Hayes asked. Chekaray said someone in London had gotten uncomfortable. Hayes asked whether he needed to worry. No, Chekaray said. He told Hayes to distance himself from whatever it was that Hoshino had done to kick up this whole storm. As for the broader question about whether he had been asking the London crew to move LIBOR, Hayes should just explain that this is the way things worked in the market. They hadn't done anything wrong. Or, if they had, just about everyone was guilty. Lawyers from a high-priced law firm, Cleary Gottlieb, flew from New York to interview Hayes. They invited him into one of the bank's finely furnished conference rooms, a few floors below where Hayes worked, that Citigroup generally used to impress clients. The lawyers were armed with reams of internal documents. Hayes tried to follow Chekaray's advice. The lawyers presented him with emails and chat transcripts showing his dialogue with Hoshino. Hayes's spin was that he was only asking him to provide general market commentary to the London team. He told the investigators that he had no idea what Hoshino had actually said that so inflamed Cheltic and Thursfield. But every time he opened his mouth, Hayes could tell the lawyers thought he was lying, which of course he was. They kept asking questions that led him to contradict his previous answers. They seemed especially exercised about a phone call where Hayes told Hoshino to grab a reluctant Cheltic on his way to the toilet to press him for LIBOR help. They also made a big deal about how Hayes, in his first days on the job, had encouraged Hoshino to butter up the submitters. That night, Hayes went home and told Ty what had happened. These lawyers came to interview me today, he said. Ty instantly knew this wasn't good. Did they interview anyone else? she asked. No, just me, Hayes replied. By the end, Hayes told her, it had seemed more like an interrogation than an interview. They had me saying left was right and right was left, he recounted. I didn't really know what I was saying. A few days later, Hayes turned to McCappen for advice. The CEO assured him he had nothing to worry about. After all, the fact that Hayes remained in his job and continued to trade was evidence that this wasn't a big deal. If they really thought he'd done something wrong, surely they would have suspended him. McCappen repeated Chekaray's advice to point the finger at Hoshino. Ty, a lawyer herself, wasn't so sanguine. The fact that the attorneys, including high-ranking partners, had flown from New York did not suggest that Citigroup viewed this as a minor problem.
She asked Chekere out for a drink. They met at the Windsor. Give it to me straight, she said. What's going on? Nothing, Chekere replied. There might be a slap on the wrist. He smacked his expensive wristwatch for emphasis. Ty didn't think Chekere was lying, but she wasn't sure he knew what he was talking about either. At home, she sat down with her fiancé for a serious conversation. It was time, she told him, to hire a lawyer. He needed someone to sit in the room with him during these meetings, someone equipped to square off against Cleary Gottlieb's attorneys. Hayes insisted that wasn't necessary. He told her that he could trust Chekere and McCappen, and if they said everything would be all right, everything would be all right. There was, he proclaimed, no need to waste money on a lawyer. Ty shouted at him that he was being unbelievably naive, but Hayes had the final word. In August, Hayes departed for his bachelor party, a stag do in British parlance in southwestern Ireland. The rolling, bright green countryside was a refreshing break from Tokyo. Hayes and a dozen strong group, led by his childhood friend Charlie and his brother and stepbrothers, stayed in a local university's dorms. Hayes thought the stark, bare rooms looked like jail cells. Rounding out the entourage were a few of Hayes's brokers, Noel Cryan, Nigel Delmar, and Danny Brand. The dynamic was strange. Cryan and Delmar had never gotten along, and Cryan thought it was weird that he was there at all. Cryan knew that if Hayes were ever to leave the industry, they'd never speak again. He wasn't so sure Hayes viewed their relationship similarly. It was sad that he viewed Cryan as one of his closest pals. But it certainly wasn't in Cryan's interest to correct that misperception. The group planned to go sea fishing. But the night before, after hitting up a bar, the guys stayed out late at a local casino, and Charlie blew all the money to charter the boat on losing hands of poker. Hayes had to pay for the outing himself. He caught a large cod. The next morning, the jet-lagged groom-to-be found himself awake while his friends remained passed out after another late night at a club. Hayes called McCappen to ask about the latest status of Citigroup's internal investigation. McCappen waved off the query. Why aren't you drunk, he asked, recommending pints of Guinness as a good antidote to Hayes's early morning sobriety. Hayes returned to Tokyo without a hard sense, or any sense at all, of what was happening with Cleary Gottlieb's own fishing expedition. By the end of the month, Hayes had spent what seemed like an eternity, at least eight hours by his count, over the course of three or four meetings with the lawyers. Wanting to show that he was being helpful and had nothing to hide, he had agreed to hand over his personal cell phone records, a surprisingly complicated task that entailed him and Ty going to his cell phone store and explaining in broken Japanese that they needed a printout listing all his calls and texts. He told Farr to stop communicating with him about LIBOR in writing. Ty once again ordered him to get a lawyer. Hayes once again refused. And once again, they fought. This time, though, Ty issued an ultimatum. He could either hire a lawyer or write a formal letter to Citigroup documenting his concerns about the investigation. 
At least that would create a contemporaneous record of his grievances. If Hayes wouldn't do one of those two things, Ty said, she would stop talking to him. The threat worked, although Ty had to do the work herself. She had quit her job and was preparing to head back to London in early September. She expected to return to Japan after the wedding and honeymoon and spend the following year as a full-time student mastering Japanese. Taking a break from wedding planning, she drafted two lawyerly emails for Hayes to send to Chekaray, asserting that he hadn't broken any rules. Ty labored over the correspondence, printing out and revising drafts. She authorized Hayes to make minor tweaks, but insisted that he let her review them before they were sent. On the back of one copy, she scribbled notes detailing the choreography of the first dance at their wedding, as planned by their dance instructor. Foxtrot, promenade, waltz, swing, marching for four counts. The first missive, sent August 20th, protested that Hayes was being treated like a suspect. I have felt as though perhaps I am being accused of doing something wrong, although frankly I am not sure whether that is the case or not. And, if it is the case, I am not sure exactly what I am being accused of, he wrote. Chekaray promised to forward the note up the chain of command. The second email, sent nine days later, protested that Hayes hadn't received a response to his first letter, and he complained that a Citigroup employee had come to collect information from him under false pretenses, claiming it was needed for auditors, not the lawyers. I am now considering making a formal complaint, since it appears that my previous email has fallen on deaf ears, Hayes wrote. Though he didn't mention it in his notes, Hayes had noticed that he was no longer able to access certain websites at work and couldn't email attachments to people outside Citigroup. He told himself it probably was just a glitch in the system. Around 11 a.m. on September 6th, Hayes was at his desk trading. It was a hot day, with temperatures in the low 90s, and a stiff wind didn't do much to cool the broiling city. Hayes was sitting at his desk in an ill-fitting Tullet Prebon polo shirt when McCappen's assistant, Kevin Green, tapped him on the shoulder. Can I have a word with you? he asked, beckoning. Hayes grumbled that he didn't want to leave his desk, but reluctantly got up. He figured it was yet another interview with the lawyers, and he started walking to the elevators so he could go down to the same conference room they'd been using. Green instead directed him into an austere, windowless meeting room on the eighth floor. Hayes still thought it was a normal interview. After all, only minutes earlier, he'd been placing bets with Citigroup's money. As soon as he entered the meeting room, though, he realized this was something different. McCappen was there. So was Morton, who had flown in from London. A couple of lawyers and human resources officials were crowded in, too. Hayes' adrenaline pumped. McCappen got things started. This was a formal meeting, not a debating forum, he declared. Citigroup had completed its internal investigation and concluded that Hayes had attempted to manipulate LIBOR and TIBOR. He might have violated multiple Japanese laws in the process. 
All of this was grounds for Citigroup to fire Hayes, McCappen said, and that was what the bank intended to do. An HR official handed Hayes a typed letter, signed by McCappen. Such conduct is in clear violation of provisions of the City Code of Conduct, resulting in the potential for serious regulatory or reputational harm to the entire Citigroup organization, McCappen read aloud, without looking up. Moreover, we regret that you did not cooperate fully with Citigroup's internal investigation into your conduct. The foregoing constitutes clear grounds for punitive termination. Hayes struggled to comprehend the words. A dream like Hayes seemed to cloud the room. Was this really happening? Someone asked Hayes to sign the letter. He refused. It's ironic, he said angrily, because Brian was doing the exact same thing. But he didn't have any trading positions, a lawyer responded. Hayes asked for a severance payment. The executives exchanged glances and whispered to each other. Hayes was escorted to a tiny room with nothing but a table and a phone. They told him to wait there. Left alone, he called Chekaray, who didn't answer. Then he phoned Ty. She was in the middle of getting a massage. Look, I've been fired, he announced. Oh shit, she said. I'll come home. The meeting reconvened. Hayes's request for severance was turned down, but he was allowed to keep his signing bonus, as well as another $2.4 million he'd collected in the ensuing 10 months. And the bank promised not to tell any prospective employers in the future about the circumstances in which he'd left. Hayes considered that to be a victory. Pushing for more, he told the group that nobody had ever explained to him the rules he was now accused of violating. He said he wanted to invoke a whistleblower's clause in his contract to point the finger at senior management. Checkeray and McCappen knew what was happening and participated. Hayes threatened to sue. The meeting ended about 45 minutes after Green had tapped him on the shoulder. Now Green ushered Hayes down the hall. He asked what Hayes wanted to take from the office. Just as two lucky pandas, he said. Anything else? Green asked. A noose, Hayes responded. Then Green marched him out of the building. Hayes went home and slumped onto the sofa. He was in a state of shock. I can't believe it, he told Ty over and over. He alternated between holding his face in his hands and raking both hands through his hair, sending flakes of dandruff into the air. Ty wasn't so surprised by the situation. She had seen this, or something like this, coming weeks ago. Hayes called far on his cell phone. The broker was stunned when he heard what had happened. Hayes told him that during the hours of interviews, the lawyers had played tapes of some of his phone calls with Farr about LIBOR. This, Hayes said, was a big part of why he'd been fired. Terrified and confused, Farr decided not to tell his R.P. Martin managers. Rumors about Hayes' abrupt departure began to circulate. The prevailing wisdom was that he'd been fired for losing a lot of money. Can't say I'm too surprised. Shame, though, an ICAP executive emailed Wilkinson. But others were closer to the real reason. Pete the Greek and Sasha Prince were among those trying to figure out what happened. 
Prince was by now at Bank of America. Pete the Greek was still looking to escape UBS and was pressing Prince to get him an interview. You heard about Tom Hayes? Prince asked. Yeah, sacked for cause. Pretty nasty. Supposedly, he tried to influence New York guys in setting LIBOR, and they have that on tape, Prince gossiped. That is ugly, Pete the Greek said. Elsewhere, traders and managers wondered why Hayes had been fired for doing what so many others also were doing. Of course, he requested that submissions be favorable to his position, but Citigroup evidently took a hard line with him for some reason. A puzzled Deutsche Bank trader emailed his managers. Morton and other Citigroup executives needed to figure out how to explain Hayes' disappearance to the outside world. Eventually, they settled on cryptic, imprecise language. Tom breached the internal rules at Citi for the management of his positions and left the firm yesterday. If pressed for more details, employees could respond. He attempted to manipulate daily markings on his positions, which wasn't true. A memo cautioned against linking his departure to LIBOR. Never talk about LIBOR fixing, it said. If we talk about his wrongdoing on fixing of yen LIBOR, most customers would think Citi committed a violation. Clients were also to be told that the damage would be limited because, with Hayes' three-week wedding and honeymoon approaching, he had already exited many of his positions in advance. That was not altogether convincing. And in fact, Hayes' investments proved painful to unwind, in part because they were so well-known across Tokyo's trading community. Citigroup officials later estimated they incurred about $50 million in losses. Hayes and Ty flew back to England together, in sync with her previously planned departure, but a week earlier than he'd planned to travel. He was still working the angles, looking for new jobs. Adolf had sent him a commiserating text message when he heard about the firing, noting that he had endured a similar experience at Merrill Lynch back in April 2008. You got fired just before your wedding, just like me. He then helped arrange a job interview for Hayes at Deutsche Bank's London office. But when Hayes checked in at the reception desk, word came down that he was not to enter the building. A Deutsche Bank executive, Mark Lewis, instead met Hayes at a nearby restaurant. He brought Adolf along. Hayes and Adolf, despite their long history, had never actually met. Hayes was left with the impression that Deutsche Bank was interested in hiring him, but the process would need to work its way through the bank's internal bureaucracy. Stress was causing Hayes to act even more strangely than usual. A day or two before the wedding, Sandy drove her son to Ty's parents' house. Ty and her mother, Karen, invited the two in for lunch. Hayes answered on his mother's behalf. Oh no, Karen, don't worry about that. Mom was just saying to me in the car, Oh God, I don't have to go in for food with them, do I? The Thai women looked at each other, stunned. Hayes stood there grinning. I didn't mean it like that, I really didn't, Sandy stammered. It's just that I've already eaten. Nobody was offended, Karen assured Sandy, who didn't look like she believed it. Afterward, 
Ty told her fiancé why what he'd just done was inappropriate. Hayes responded with a bout of hysterical laughter. Ty was devastated by Hayes's firing. She had been eagerly anticipating returning to Tokyo as a full-time student. That door now had slammed shut. I am home but very depressed, she wrote to one of her Japanese friends, who had asked whether she should wear Western or Japanese garb to the wedding. I can't really be bothered to even think about the wedding. I can't get my mind off the fact that I am being forced to leave Japan. She and Hayes had been talking about starting a family of their own. That idea, too, was shunted to the back burner. I feel very unsettled about what has happened, and I guess I am going to have to go back to work if he can't get a job. Sigh, she wrote to Chekere's wife, Megan. I only just quit. The wedding took place in the English countryside on the third anniversary of Hayes and Ty meeting at the Intercontinental Swimming Pool. Hayes had picked the date. Ty considered that to be probably the most romantic thing he'd ever done. The venue was a Four Seasons hotel in an old Georgian manor house surrounded by rolling farmland near where Ty grew up. Tuxedoed waiters served cocktails and hors d'oeuvres in a courtyard where wild rabbits hopped. Hayes wore a formal British morning suit. At Ty's insistence, he stopped wearing his golden QPR pinky ring in advance of the wedding. Ty was in a body-hugging, strapless white dress with her back exposed. Custom-made diamond jewelry sparkled on her neck and ears. Hayes had invited several former colleagues. Chekere couldn't make it, but a bunch of brokers, Brent Davies, Noel Cryan, Daryl Reed, and others, and their wives were there. Cryan and Reed huddled in a corner, gossiping about Hayes' firing and wondering what the full story was. Despite the careful choreography and dancing lessons, Hayes botched the second promenade of their first dance. As the party wound down, Hayes wrapped his arm around his wife, and they watched as more than $10,000 of fireworks exploded in the night sky. Hayes had booked the second nicest suite at the hotel. The king of Thailand was occupying the best rooms. Afterward, they flew to the Maldives for their honeymoon. They stayed in a villa on stilts in the Indian Ocean. The weather was awful. They huddled together inside, listening to rain and waves lash the house.